Welcome to Resilient Minds 365, where we discuss the resilient stories of entrepreneurs, professionals, and students with mental illnesses to encourage you to strive, thrive, and live in abundance. I'm your host, Cleone Crawford. Welcome back to another episode of Resilient Minds 365. I'm your host, Cleone Crawford. Guys, we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Constance Scharf with us. Who is Dr. Constance Scharf? Well, she is an internationally recognized speaker and author on topics of addiction and trauma recovery and mental health. She's the founder of the Institute of Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research. Her writing centers around using complementary health and contemplative practices to improve treatment outcomes. She is a passionate advocate for decolonizing mental health care and incorporating Indigenous practices and ontologies into healthcare services. Dr. Scharf is the 2019 recipient of the St. Lawrence University Soul Feinstone. Feinstone. Feinstone, thank you. Humanitarian Award, honoring her service to and advocacy for those suffering from mental illness, trauma, and addiction. She regularly travels the world speaking, teaching, and advocating for compassionate health practices and destigmatizing mental health problems. With that said, I now present to you Dr. Constance Sharp. So Hi. Dr. thank you for how having are you me. Doing? I'm great today. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing super. I'm doing super. It looks as though you have been doing you have been busy and you have been getting um doing a lot of work with um mental health and decolonizing um, mental health. And I think that's amazing. So tell us more about your profession. Um, Break it down for us. So I'm a mental health researcher and uh, advocate. I am not a a psychotherapist. I want to be super clear right off the bat. I'm not a therapist. Uh, I train therapists and uh, and others in the mental health care field. And what we look at are what are the practices? I like to keep it real simple. What are the practices that improve treatment outcomes? How do people live better lives? And uh, a lot of those practices, quite frankly, are easy to access, simple to implement, inexpensive, and people don't have access to them because they're not covered by insurance. So we don't think of them. And so I really advocate for those easy to access practice pract- or easy to do practices. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. So tell us more about, um, I believe it was uh, decolonizing mental health care. How have you, what have you done to help? advocate to decolonize in mental health care. So that's a great question. So what is the colonization? Let's first look at the definition of this. What is the colonization of mental health care? And it really is this this dominance of a very particular white, wealthy, 
perspective on what, what is helpful, what is healing. And that really boils down to very standard sorts of talk therapies, right? Mm -hmm. So if I go into a treatment facility and I speak to someone, you know, who probably is going to be white, middle-aged from a reasonably wealthy background because you have to have, you know, four years of, in the United States, you have to have four years of university plus three years of uh, uh, graduate school plus also all your hours. So you're talking about someone who's made a, a pretty big commitment to school, has access to all of those kinds of resources. And so it gives you a very, very narrow Mm -hmm. Anything that's colonized, right, gives us a, a very narrow view of healing. And what I've found over the years in, in my research is mm, that's great for some people, but it doesn't work for others. Right. So Native Americans, for example, rarely seek mental health care. But when they do and they get, you know, shunted off to talk therapy and they're talking to someone, you know, who is, you know, not of their culture, does not have cultural experience then how does the person understand? And so they drop out, overwhelmingly go to one session and never go back. I've had this experience. I'm Jewish and I, I have significant uh, childhood trauma in my background. And so I went to a very well-regarded trauma therapist. And I said, I don't say Kaddish for my father's yard site. Mm-hmm. And then I proceeded to have to explain to this person what a cottage is, what a yard site is, why it's important, why I don't do it, blah, blah, blah. And, and I spent my whole session educating her. Well, I never went back to her. I needed someone who had that kind of, and once I'd had that experience, right, I was like, this, right, because every we're, we're all a little self-centered. I mean, all human beings are, right? We, we focus on our own experience. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of people who are being left out of this system. I also was giving a lecture uh, outside of Cape Town in uh, South Africa, and I was giving all the latest uh, uh, information on best practices in treatment in, in mental health care at this at a mental health hospital. They had everybody in the hospital. I mean, the janitor seemed to have been the. I mean, everybody was in the room to listen to me speak, and at the end. One person raised their, when I went for questions, one person raised their hand and uh, he said, yeah, we don't have those resources. Hmm. We don't have psychotherapists, you know, we, he said, we have four psychotherapists for this region and there are none in the region that we serve to the north of us. Hundreds of thousands, you know, of people. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm foolish, right? Because I didn't get it. And I was like, okay, do you ever work with traditional healers, shamans, that sort of thing? And they were like, no, but, and so we talked about the resources that they have. So these experiences of mine taught me that there are a lot of ways of dealing with issues and that we have to be very cognizant of dealing with culturally sensitive individuals and resources and worldviews that the person seeking treatment holds. So I was in Egypt, in Cairo, speaking at a mental health conference, and it was when the Syrians were fleeing en masse into Europe. And I said to the Arab, you know, representatives of Arab countries, help us. 
we need, I mean, I, I'm in North America, so I, I don't have a, a, a horse in the race, but I was like, I was like, we need in Europe, Arabic speaking, culturally competent mental health professionals to assist these people. And then they explained to me why that wasn't going to happen. And I understood that, but what can someone, you know, who's British or Danish or Greek, right? What do they have to give someone in terms of life experience and understanding perspective? What do we have to give in terms of support from someone who's fleeing a war and doesn't speak our language and isn't part of the culture that they're coming into and doesn't look at the world from this particular very Western, very European, really, mental health perspective. That's what decolonizing colonizing mental health is about. And so I do two things. First, I, I talk about it and say, hey, 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 this talk therapy isn't the be-all, end-all for everyone. And I try to open doors. That's why I set up the Institute for Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research. I'm not Indigenous. I do not do Indigenous mental health. I do not do Indigenous mental health research. But I have seen the importance of that for all sorts of communities around the world. And so I want to open a door so that any table that I sit at, a person of color, someone who's indigenous, someone who comes from a marginalized population, LGBTQIA, whatever, Mm -hmm. if I get to sit at the table, representatives from your communities get to sit at the table too, if I have anything to say about it. So those are the two things that I do. That's amazing. Amazing. I love it. I love it. It's so important because, you know, when you have a counselor and when you're reaching out for, for help, you need to be able to connect with your, with your, um, I guess your healer or Mm -hmm. your counselor or your, your support help or whoever it is that is providing your service. They need, they need to be, you need to but they need to be able to at least have understand your social location so that you can be able to um, um, move forward, you know, in your journey. Right. So we call that rapport, right? You have to have rapport between client and and uh, and counselor. Now, you don't have to have exactly the same experience. No. So no. I have a lot of trauma in my background. I work a lot with veterans. Now, combat veterans in particular, they have a very different experience that gave them trauma, but we have the ex- the shared experience of going through life with trauma symptoms. And so that is what helps us to build rapport with one another. Right. There are also some, you know, common aspects of humanity that I think are very important. So when George Floyd was murdered, I don't think that there's anyone who is a compassionate human being who doesn't see a man being choked to death, calling out for his mother, Mm. who doesn't have some sort of compassion for that. That doesn't mean I would be the best, you know, if I was a counselor, that I would be the best counselor for someone who has, you know, was part of his family, for example. But to see someone degraded and their life ended, there's a certain element of humanity to that. And I think that's very important because that's where intersectionality comes in. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to be Black or Indigenous or Latinx or whatever to understand 
that all of those communities need to have access to the same kinds of things that people like me take for granted. Very true, very true. I mean, privileges, you know, we all we are all have different privileges and it's very important that we understand we understand what our privileges are so that we when when we're working with other people we're able to um help people um coming from where we're where we're coming from i guess i i think i'm mixing myself up or something like that that's okay yeah i'm going to ask my next question sure <laughs> what is your mental health diagnosis and when were you diagnosed so i am an addict and alcoholic i drink uh very heavily from the age of 11 to 22. I really started trying to get sober at 22. I finally achieved the current sobriety date that I have um, at 25. Um, I also have um, what would now be called complex PTSD. I know there's some uh, uh, argument about whether PTSD is complex or not, or, uh, you know, it used to be that uh, the different aspects of trauma were diagnosed separately. I like complex PTSD because that diagnosis because it includes anxiety, depression, tr other kinds of trauma symptoms all in one. Um, and so I've had that really um, since I was a child. Um, I wasn't uh, technically diagnosed with it uh, until I, I was well into, uh, oh, I want to say probably 40. But uh, you know, I don't love diagnoses. I think they pathologize us. I look at people who, you know, um, like I drank too much and I needed to stop drinking <laughs> because I was going to die rather than, I, you know, this idea that I'm an alcoholic, I'll always be an alcoholic, which I, for me, I should not ever drink. Um, it doesn't work for me and I haven't had a drink in, in uh, 24 and a half years. But um, I think of myself as recovered um, because I don't I don't drink and I, and I don't identify with with that as something that's wrong with me. I also don't identify with um, these mental health issues as chronic diseases that need to be managed. I have been able to find resources for myself and then pass them on to others that really work to um to be curative really i mean i see myself as in remission really um yeah. from addiction and from trauma and that i really don't have symptoms from either of those issues so long as i do some you know maintenance work um on myself uh and that to me is a gift so i don't have to see myself as ill i see myself as as recovered Amazing, amazing. So how about we um, tell us about your mental health story of resilience? How did you overcome um, your alcoholism and the PTSD where it's no longer affecting you? And what did you have to do to overcome? Like, what was the process? When did you first um, realize that you were had an alcoholic problem? And um, just walk us through the, res the resilience step. Story. Sure. Sure. So I was 
raped and nearly murdered when I was six, just before my seventh birthday. And then a month later, my father started uh, sexually abusing me. And that went on for three years until I was 10. And my father had a girlfriend. She's a prostitute, but he called her his girlfriend. And she saw me, my mother was really ending the relationship at this point, but she saw me washing my sheets on like a Tuesday morning before school. And she looked me in the eye and she said, he will never touch you again. Now this is in the 70s, maybe it's probably 1980, I was 10 or 82, I was 10, it was 82. So this is long before, you know, a woman like her had really any ground to stand on in terms of supporting someone. So I don't know what she said to my father, but he never touched me again. When I was 11, I started drinking because I intuitively knew that drinking would keep the, the flashbacks and the pain down. Okay. And so I drank as much as I could, as often as I could. And by the time I graduated from college at 21, I was drinking a lot. My father died very suddenly when I was 22. And it was at that point that I realized that I was an alcoholic because when he died, I thought I drank because I was afraid of him. Mm -hmm. When he died, I started drinking more and I was drinking two liters or more of hard liquor a day. And so I had to stop drinking or die. Those were the choices. Mm -hmm. So I went to a 12-step program. And what I found was when I didn't drink, the trauma symptoms rose up so incredibly and I couldn't deal with them. So I started seeking therapy, trauma therapy, in addition to the 12-step program. And after about two and a half years, I finally was able to stay sober despite the trauma symptoms being terrible. It took me nearly 20 years, and it's why I do this research, because I saw people coming back from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they weren't able to get sober, and they were killing themselves. And so I went into this field because I was like, there has to be something better, because I was sober but suicidal because the trauma symptoms were so bad. And so I... um. I actually found something called somatic experiencing, which is a body-based therapy rather than a talk therapy, a, a cognitive therapy, a mind-based therapy. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely changed my life and, and, the, and the trauma symptoms. Once I was able to be in my body and push those things through, work those things through, uh, it's, it's been amazing. And so that's that combination of community support, right? being with other people who who have problems and don't drink and also the uh the somatic experiencing those those things in combination really made all the difference amazing amazing so you probably touched on some of this earlier but i'm going to ask this question what did you have to do to overcome or bounce back in your low points list all the resources so you talked about the somatic So there's lots of resources. The first thing I have to say is that connection is key. Okay. When you have trauma, when you have mental health issues, you know, when you have addiction, it feels like 
isolation is the best answer. Yes. We want to protect ourselves. We want to guard ourselves. You know, one of the things that was not helpful um, as I was older, but felt useful at the time is I overheard my father say once, I don't want to have sex with fat women, which he did all the time. But I was like, well, this is I'm like, you know, 10, eight, nine, something like that. I'm like, this is good information. So I ate every Twinkie I could get my hands on, right? Mm -hmm. Because I thought that would, you know, keep me safe well into my adulthood. When I finally, when it finally hit in my heart, oh, wait, that's not true. I literally dropped 75 pounds and have kept it off now for five years. I'm still a heavy lady. I'm still a big lady, but not as big as I was. I didn't change my diet. I didn't change my exercise. I, did, I didn't do anything different. I simply didn't need that coping mechanism anymore. So we have maladaptive. I certainly do have maladaptive coping mechanisms and healthy ones. Some of the healthy ones that I've used are uh, music. So mm -hmm. one of the things uh, I've learned in my research is that playing music and singing lights up the entire brain. Hmm. Lights up the entire brain and, and really nothing else, you know, does. Other positive activities, they light up different parts of the brain, but singing in particular lights up everything. So you know this is true. When you've had a bad day, and let's say you're sitting in traffic, and you're sort of woes me, and a song you like comes on the radio, and you turn it up and you do your own carpool karaoke, <laughs> right? You just sing like you don't care who's listening, who cares if the person next to you hears, it doesn't matter you feel better. Well, that's actually a neurological process. That's actually a biochemical part because when you sing, your brain dumps serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine. Hmm. So if you're having a bad day, hum a little bit. You will feel better. Now you and I, who let's assume that we're fairly normal biochemically. So I do my carpool karaoke and I dump my brain's used to producing these, these uh, chemicals. I go from here to here and I feel better. Now I do that with someone who's in early in addiction treatment or trauma treatment and their brain's not producing those things in those chemicals in normal levels. They go from on the floor to here and they get a natural high. Now, what does that do? That helps them to stay in treatment longer, to be more engaged in treatment, to open up a whole bunch of things, right? So I've used singing. Um, I have used story. I am very, very, I'm a writer. So I'm very, very big on story. What is this, what are the stories or the lies that we tell ourselves? Now, I don't know about truth with a capital T. Right. I don't know that how the universe was formed or, you know, is there a God or I, I don't know. Right. That's not what I'm working with. I'm looking at truth with a little T. What is true enough that I can change my life? So once, like I said, like I felt, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to be 325 pounds in order not to be abused. Mm -hmm. My life changed. Right. So what are their stories that we tell ourselves? Because one of the things when I work with veterans, I say, listen, whatever you tell yourself is true is true. So if you believe you can't get better. Okay, that's true. 
a family member of mine uh, was recently diagnosed with cancer. And I, I spoke to a, an oncologist friend of mine and I said, you know, this person is very optimistic because the, the, the diagnosis is, you know, pretty frightening. And the oncologist said, but he's the one we need to be optimistic. Because if he's not optimistic that he can be cured, we can't help him. Right. So what we tell her now, that doesn't mean that he will be cured. But if he says, I'm going to die from this, you know what? He's going to die from this. Mm -hmm. Right. So what we tell ourselves is true is true. So I work on what is a different story that I can tell myself. One of the things I learned from a friend of mine, I called up, I was in the middle of the, the trauma treatment and I was just devastated. I mean, just so low. And I was complaining about myself that I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not good enough, whatever. And he sort of yelled at me, got very aggressive. He goes, don't talk about my friend like that. It was me talking about myself. <laughs> And I realized I would never say to anyone, like them or not, the horrible things I would say to and about myself. True. Changed my life. So when I start to get a little down on myself, I say, don't talk to my friend like that. Don't talk about my friend like that. It's not, no. So that kills that negative self-talk. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you're old enough to, to remember Stuart Smalley on Saturday Night Live. That was the character name. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Right? There's something to be said for those kinds of positive mantras. There's a reason why we say mantras. Affirmations. Affirmations. Right, right. So those are two things that I really like. Meditation is great. Meditation is often difficult, though, for people with trauma. So I only very, very recently got to add that into what I do. Because what would happen is as soon as I relaxed, right, because whether eyes open, eyes closed was a no, was a no go. Uh, trying to control my breath was a no, like all of those things. I can't breathe deep enough. You know, my meditation teacher would be like, are you breathing? No. I'm terrified all the time. I'm not deep breathing. No, that wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. Singing actually helped with that, right? Because you have to breathe really deep into your into your diaphragm. So, you know, so meditation there and there's just buckets, just loads, loads, piles of research about what, you know, good meditation does. But the real thing is connection. We don't recover in isolation. We don't recover in isolation. And I think, too, one of the things I really learned in terms of these stories is I let myself off the hook. Okay. One of the, you know, I make mistakes. I've, you know, I've made errors. I've treated people badly. You know, I've, I've uh, made poor choices. And I, I do the best. I, I just we have to move on and we do the best we can from there. And we, you know, try not to do, to, to do that again. But I also have learned to do that for other people. So one of the things I've learned in being an addiction and mental trauma researcher is that people with addiction don't mistreat you usually because usually don't mistreat you because they want to, it's just that you get in the way. Mm -hmm. So if you invite me to your wedding and I'm actively using, 
it's not fair of you to say, well, don't come if you're drinking. No, no, I'm drinking. Like that's what I'm, you know, it's like, it's like saying, don't come if you're, if you have diabetes. Well, listen, I have the diabetes or don't come if you have cancer. I have the cancer. Like, you know, the person who has addiction has addiction. So I'm going to come on time, not on time, not come, make a scene, not make a scene, not because I'm doing something to you, but because my issue is out of control. It's out of my control. I don't want to show up drunk at your wedding and make a fool of myself. But that happens. So I had a I had a cousin, she's passed on, but I had a cousin who was a heroin addict. And her mother got married a few years ago and wanted her at the wedding. And she knew the, the daughter could not come to the wedding and not be high. She tried. She really did. She took less than usual. But during the ceremony, she went on the nod. And she, you know, was falling asleep. And she leaned forward while she was falling asleep during the wedding ceremony. And her breast fell out of her dress. Oh, no. Her uncle, who was sitting next to her, pushed her back, pushed her boob back in her dress. And they continued with the ceremony. The young woman died a couple of years later, and her mother is so grateful that her daughter got to be there and did the best that she could. Everybody was doing the best that they could. And that, to me, was a beautiful example of compassion for another, but now knowing, you know, the outcome that a few years later the daughter would have died. And how terrible would the mother have thought, oh, God, you know, she didn't even get to come to my wedding. Now she has that memory of, wow, she, I, I was able to have her at my wedding and she showed up the best she could. That's, we can do that for ourselves as well as for other people. And I think that's important in mental health, right? Is that we don't place judgments and expectations. You know, I'm, I'm grateful. I've recovered from alcoholism, but I remember the movie uh, Leaving Las Vegas with Nicolas Cage from, I don't know, that'd be 1995, I think. And in the movie, Nicolas Cage drinks himself to death. And the one thing he says to the his co-star is he says, I can't, don't ask me to stop drinking. I am going to drink myself to death. And you, you can be with me or not be with me, but that's what's going to happen. And there are people like that where it is whatever the trauma is, is more than they can face. Mm-hmm. And if they want to use or, you know, whatever, then if that's what they feel like they need to do, then how can I support and love them and be of service in a way that's not codependent, right, is not enabling, but also recognizes that not everybody has the resiliency that I do. Right. Because we talk, you know, you talk about resiliency and you ask about resiliency. For me, I have a little quirk in me that I don't want my father to quote unquote win. So mm-hmm. I'm going to get better despite you. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, because people like me become overdoses and suicides. That's how we end. People with my background, we don't generally make it, not for very long. But I was like, oh, 
well, then you, right? I die, you win. So I'm not going to kill myself. I'm going to become an, uh, an internationally recognized addiction researcher. Ha ha. I'm going to save other people if I can. Ha ha. Right? You thought that you were going to break me and you didn't. And you didn't. So I just have that weird quirk. And that's where my resiliency comes from. It also comes from, I think this is important. It also comes from connection. Yes. At my very, very lowest, when I was really suicidal, some friends of mine called for a wellness check. The police came over to my house. I wasn't there, but the police came over to my house and they opened, they knew, my friends knew where the extra key was, right? The hidden key. And they came to my house in, uh, at the time I was in Texas and they opened every door, every door, right? Every closet, every, to check, to see if I had, you know, and it really touched me because the lie we tell ourselves to kill ourselves, there's, there's different kinds of suicides. People who are terminally ill may choose to end their lives. That's, that's a different, I'm not talking about that. That's a different thing, right? But when we have a mental health issue, the lie that we most often tell ourselves is you, whoever friends and family are, you are better off without me. I am in so much pain that I'm hurting you with my pain. And what I learned when my friends did this wellness check was they're not better off without me. That is a lie. And those friends still, you know, if I call up, they now live in Australia. And, and um, when I call up and I say, or text them, they're like, the first question is, are you okay? Do you need me? Now, the answer has always been no, or it's not urgent. Could you call me after work? Because with all the time zone differences, right, it's not that easy to, to, to meet up. But if I ever said yes, 100% guarantee that they would drop what they're doing and they would be on the phone with me within two minutes. Absolutely know that. Because their life is not better without me. And that's what, when I work with veterans, that's what I tell them. I'm like, this idea that your family is better off without you is a lie. It's a lie. It's true. You're right. You're right. So connection that is the greatest healer. It is the greatest healer. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. So what are three things you wish you had available when you were at your lowest point? So I, we did not, when I first, when I was in my twenties in the nineties, we did not know what we know now about trauma treatment and trauma recovery. There was basically nothing because talk therapy usually doesn't work for trauma. Talk therapy. If I tell you, I can tell you what happened. I can tell you all the, all the details I have no emotional connection to it. Mm. Also, it took me two years to be able to say the word incest. I would literally sit in my therapist's office and go, uh, 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 I could not say the word. And I would write little notes. I'd say, this is what I want to talk about. And then I'd dissociate. So while she's reading the note, I want to talk about this. I'm gone. 
Uh, I mean, I'm talking to her, but I, nobody's home. So talk therapy isn't wonderful for trauma recovery. And, you know, now we know what works better. There's some beautiful, you know, resources. The Body Keeps the Score by Vanderkolk. Uh, what Happened to You by Dr. Perry and, and Oprah, actually. Um, she basically interviews him through the book. Um, you know, I wrote a book, Rock to Recovery, about music and, and trauma recovery and addiction recovery. So I wish those resources had been available, but they just weren't available. You know, they just, it just wasn't there. Um, I wish I had known that connection is more important than sobriety. Mm. I thought when I was, you know, getting sober, I thought that recovery was just not drinking. And it was very, very difficult for me to really be vulnerable with people who loved me because I couldn't feel the feelings. My body was literally so numb. I knew I loved you, but I didn't feel it. And the somatics have helped me to be able to have that experience. Again, that, you know, that knowledge just didn't exist. And I think the third thing that I wish I had known is I wish I had known to trust myself. I know good people. I know damaged people. Mm -hmm. And I have allowed too many people who are not great people and too many people who are really damaged to take up too much of my time. And what I really would have liked to have focused on, and again, listen, we make mistakes, right? Is people who give back in equal measure to what I give. And I, that would have helped me, would have, you know, kept me from wasting a lot of time and, you know, relationships that, that weren't really, you know, stupendous because we only have so much time. That's right. So let's put our, let's put our energy with the people who, who, who we matter to as much as they matter to us. Right. Okay. And what words of hope can you give to our listeners? What would you tell them? Anybody can recover. From from these, you know, from addiction, from trauma, from a host of mental health issues, depression, anxiety, these are transient states. They do not have to be for the rest of your life. I love that. I love that. You know, I should not be who I am. I, I, I've written best-selling books. I've written, I've written award-winning books. I've traveled all over the world. I have uh, been able to collaborate with wonderful, wonderful people. I have good relationships in my life, right? My life is great. I should be dead. I should never have made it past 25. And I've dedicated my life to not only helping to find what works, but to encouraging other practitioners, practitioners of lots of different uh, varieties of mental health, 
um, therapeutics to get out there in the world. And so you can recover. And I want to say too that there are resources that are available in your community and it doesn't matter if they're not recognized by the, you know, whatever psychological association, you know, is, is around you in your state or, or nationally or whatever. When I was uh, 17, I was in, I was in the Girl Scouts. I'm st I still am. I'm a lifetime member, but I was 17 year olds, years old. I was a senior in high school. I was in the Girl Scouts and I was invited to a powwow in Oregon. And a woman saw my trauma. She really saw me, right? And she said, come, she had a drum circle. She had a, a drum and she said, come drum with us. And I was like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not native. I don't want to. And she was like, no, no, I'm inviting you. Come drum. Because she knew that that connection would be healing for me. And it meant so much. I just turned 50 that 33 years later, I'm still talking about it. So there are resources that are available in all different communities to help us, to connect us to one another and to help us to overcome um, whatever issues. So you can recover. Love it. Love it. Love it. So now we're going to switch topics just a little bit um, by um, talking a little bit about music therapy. As you can see behind me, there's a book and the book's called The Music of My Life. It's um, it's about my journey with bipolar, with bipolar and music therapy. So my question to you is what type of music do you like? Well, what kind of music do I like? <laughs> <laughs> I love really hard rock and I love uh, grunge and and uh, hard rock and metal and, and those sorts of things. Um, I'm also old enough. I love the 80s. You know, that's a throwback. I remember laughing at my uncle because he likes, quote unquote, oldies, right, from the 50s and early 60s. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, what we used to, you know, go to, you know, school dances to is now played in the grocery store. You're like, okay, that's awesome. You know, so, but I think it's it's also sort of irrelevant in the sense of it doesn't matter what music I like. I mean, it's a nice question about me, but any music, any music that you connect to is going to have therapeutic value. That's right. And so I want to talk beyond quote unquote music therapy because music therapy is usually performed, at least in some states, uh, the, the uh, definition um, is that it has to be performed by a music therapist. And I think music is therapeutic far beyond a music therapist. So I've worked with an organization, like I said, Rock to Recovery, that um, hires musicians to write and record songs with people who are in treatment for addiction, trauma, uh, other mental health issues. So musicians, right, can connect with us in ways uh, that, you know, bring us, uh, that are therapeutic. I also, I got interested in this because well, back before I was doing research into music and mental health, I saw a video 
of a woman who was, um, I don't know, some sort of tech or, or, or uh, maybe, a, maybe a nurse, something in a nursing home. And she played recordings of music, but but no training in music is is my point. She played music from when the her patients were young. Mm. Not only did they remember the music, but they these are dementia patients. They saw a huge increase in cognitive function. People who were they knew where they were. They knew who their children were. They knew their names. Thing and it would last up to several hours. Wow. And I was like, well, what's going on with music? So I don't want to just, I don't, I, I want to say music is much bigger than music therapy. Music therapy is one small thing. Music is much bigger. Like I was saying about being invited to this powwow and getting to drum, the power of being included, of community and ceremony and drumming. I was in uh, Namibia. Oh, this is probably, I don't know, 15 years ago, 16 years, something like that. I was in Namibia and I was able to watch some San, the, the Bushmen of the Kalahari from The Gods Must Be Crazy is where they're known for. But I was I was able to be with the San and, and observe a traditional healing ceremony. And the community gets together all night and they, you know, they have shamans, traditional healers, whatever, who are, you know, in charge, but the whole community claps and sings and connects. And it's, they use music, they use percussion, they use rhythm to heal each other. Right. Now, I'm not saying that that will, you know, cure a broken leg. And I don't think they are either, right? When someone breaks a leg, they take them to the nearest, you know, clinic and try to put a splint on it or whatever. But so much is healed through music. I was in Kenya when I was in college. I was living in Kenya and there was an old man who was dying. And the community came out and they sang outside of his little, his, his home. And I'll be darned if that man didn't get up from his, literally from his deathbed mm-hmm. and say, I'm going to, I'm going to stick around. He lived like, I don't know, six or eight more weeks. Like he just was like, yeah, I'm not going to die today. Thank you so much for coming out and singing to me because he was so moved by the music. So music, I mean, my research centers on, okay, well, we now understand what's happening is, is a neurological and a biochemical process. Okay, yeah. well, that's fine. It's kind of boring. But, you know, I mean, we can talk about it if you want, but that's fine. But what we've known anecdotally for centuries is that music heals, music connects, and music heals. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right. So how can we stay in touch with you and what are your social media media handles? So uh, everything is at Dr. Sharf, D-R-S-C-H-A-R-F-F. 
Um, so for TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all those places. Um, I have given up my Twitter because I'm not doing the Elon Musk thing. And uh, I have uh, a bunch of books. They're available on Amazon. My most recent is Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation. Um, oh. Again, everything's available on Amazon. Um, also, my website is uh, constanscharf.com um, or org or net, I think also, but um, you can find me just by my name on the web. And uh, I also write for Psychology Today um, and uh, review books for the New York Journal of Books. So I'm on all the socials and uh, I'm very easy to get a hold of. I, you know, very happy when people reach out to me um, and I'm happy to give referrals wherever I can. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Sharf, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest on our show. Um, you was definitely our wealth of information. Um, I thank you very much for coming on the show. And to all you resilient minds out there, until next time, please subscribe to us on all our platforms. And don't forget to rate the show and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Also, join the community of resilient minds and sign up for our monthly newsletter at peonycrawford.com. Be sure to grab a copy of my book, The Music of My Life, on all Amazon marketplaces to get to know me better. And if you can find, if you can think of one person that will receive value from today's show or connect with Dr. Sharf's testimonial, please share it with them. Feel free to take a screenshot of this week's episode of the podcast and tag us on Instagram. You can tag myself at OnlyCleone or Resilient Minds 365 and today's desk at Dr. Scharf. Um, and remember, mental health is not a death sentence. Despite your illness, you can strive, thrive, and live a life of abundance. Until next time, I'm Cleone Crawford, and I'm signing off.